Welcome to the Man on Second podcast, part of Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Joe Frisaro. Uh Today we have another great guest for you in a great episode. But first, Dave, I, that song that you, you got us leading into, going to try to wake up the audience here after that one. But uh, always intrigued by what you're going to play for us. Uh, our guest today, uh, and first, our mission, as always, on the, on the channel is to raise the baseball IQs of our listeners. And if we don't do it today, then I've failed because I got a great guest in Mike Petriello. Mike Petriello needs no introduction to those, you know, really connected to the game, especially on the analytic and, st- and the stat cast side of it. Mike and I were colleagues at MLB.com. Mike uh, still does an amazing job there. Uh, you know, you see his work on MLB Network. He was just, you know, putting out their, their all-position teams. Um, we'll talk a little bit about probably some of those. Uh, and obviously, Mike is takes part in, I think, the ESPN games, Mike, the uh, the, the StatCast uh, games. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. We've done a lot of those for sure over the years. Yeah. 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 So it's ESPN, the, uh, the StatCast with, with Jason Benetti and, and Eduardo Perez, they do an amazing job there. But before we get really deep into with, talking with Mike, Dave, come on in, uh, give us some announcements for what's going on. No, I appreciate it. We're, we're excited about this guest today. Very different than what we've had in our, I think this is our 114th episode, and it's going to be a phenomenal treat for our audience here. So thanks to Joe and Mike for coming on. But message to our audience, 11,000 today, Joe. We eclipsed 11,000 subscribers today. I want to thank you for your support. You can download us on Amazon, Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. We're in 46 different countries right now, getting support all over the globe, anywhere from grassroots to major league front offices. Make sure you continue to support what we're doing by following those. Download, listen, like, and subscribe. Please write comments. It affects who we bring on, uh, the types of guests, the questions, and even sometimes affects the music, Joe. You didn't recognize that was me on the mandolin today. You didn't recognize oh, that. Oh, okay. No, 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 that's good. That's good. Give you guys a treat. But with that, go, get, let's get right to our guest here. We're excited to have Mike. Yeah, yeah. We're really excited to have Mike Petriel on. And, and, and Mike, welcome to the show. And uh, first, I want to start off with, um, you know, you were right there in the ground floor when, when StackCast launched in 2015. And it's always evolving. That's the beauty of it. What could be new and what could fans expect to see on your fine work and on MLB.com and on the MLB Network as you kind of really expand StatCast in 2023? Well, first of all, hi, Joe. And hi, David. I, uh, there's always something new. I don't want to take up like your entire hour long show here <laughs> just talking about the new stuff we have. But I, I can give you a quick sneak peek. There okay. are, I think there's two things that I'm very excited about. One uh, was teased a little bit last year, which was StatCast can now actually track the bat. Right, all this other stuff we've tracked in the past, the players, the ball, all this. You never really could track the bat itself, which is like the building block of baseball. And um last year they upgraded the cameras. It was a test program just in Houston, Dodger Stadium, to see if it would even work to track the bat. And so like think about the applications of that. You know, who swings the fastest is obvious, right? Bat speed. But you know, who's got a good swing path? Who has an uppercut swing? Who swings down? Who catches the ball in front of the plate? You know, who gets jammed on the handles? the most and all that from the pitcher's point of view too like i can i can't give you this answer yet because i don't have it but we'll be able to say you know what pitcher jams the most bats or misses the most bats above the barrel or below the barrel i think that's going to open up um a whole bunch of new stuff so that's the first thing i'm excited about second thing is we've got a couple of catcher metrics coming out catchers with the rule changes are going to be a big point of discussion this year so the the two metrics we're going to have out one is about uh blocking skill and one is about stolen base skill. And uh, without going too deeply into that, 
for 150 years of baseball, everyone has known you steal bases off the pitcher, not off the catcher. And we're going to be able to show that. We know the lead distance. We know the speed of the runner. We know we know who's good uh, in terms of the pitchers coming to the plate. And so we'll be able to uh, have the next generation of caught stealing rate to give the catchers a little more credit, you know, at least for the ones who deserve it. Oh, that's amazing stuff. And and to our audience, just so you know, one of the things, or many things I love about Mike Petriello's work is Mike explains complex detail so simplistic, simplistically so everyone could understand it. And, and I'm really looking forward to this one. Mike, I want to jump in on, on bat speed because that is really something that, you know, I, I kind of look at it. My foundation obviously more of the old school, but obviously the new school. Uh, as you know, I have a son in the game and as a scout. And I, I kind of, I have a perspective of scouting, front offices, coaches, the blending of analytics. So all that goes to me to seeing what what makes for a good player in the helping in the evaluation of a player. And something you always hear, especially from the player development, the scouting people are that quick twitch, bat speed, and, you know, to the trained eye, they see it. The untrained eye doesn't, but StatCast breaking that down is going to allow now the fans and, the, and, and all these other people now more of a clue on what they mean when they talk about bat speed. Uh, I think that's right. And I, I think maybe you unintentionally touched on something important there, uh, which is there's always seemingly this battle between stats and scouts and everything. And, you know, is this stuff going to replace scouts? And I, I don't think that's true at all. Um, I, I think all it is is. I don't necessarily need a scout to sit somewhere with a timer or a radar gun. You know, when I when I know that the technology can do that easily and probably more consistently, I, I think scouts are incredibly important just in terms of getting to know the player. Is he hustling? Is he a good teammate? Is he, you know, is one guy, are, are two guys hitting the ball equally as hard, but one guy does it easy and the other guy swings out of his shoes to get there? You know, that kind of stuff. Scouts yeah. are vitally important for that. It doesn't mean that they're going away. It just means that the job description is, is changing a little bit because it's easy to measure pitch velocity now and, and getting there with bat speed. And um, I think the best organizations are are using both sides of that. It's all just information, no matter where it comes from. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, it says so much because obviously, you know, Chas Chisholm Jr. down here in Miami, very incredible bat speed, which is one reason why kind of a smaller statured man can hit the ball as far as some of these guys seemingly twice his size because he has that elite bat speed and when he can catch the, the baseball at a certain spot is, you know, speak to, to that phenomenon. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned him. I just gave a presentation yesterday to a bunch of TV producers on bat speed and like what it is and how to use it. And I, I had an example of a home run he hit in Houston off of, I believe, Luis Garcia last year that I used as an example of this. And what I showed was... You know, what's kind of interesting to start with is how do you even measure bat speed? Like where, you know, the end of the bat moves a lot faster than the handle of the bat does. So, you know, what we're going to do is measure it at the sweet spot, six inches from the top. Um, but it it does, you know, we don't have enough information yet to necessarily show like bat speed versus size, which is where I think where you're getting at. Like, can the smaller guys still have power? Yes, of course they do. But what's interesting to me, and, and we'll know this next year or this upcoming year when we have it in all 30 parks as opposed to just two parks, is what will be more important? Is it raw bat speed or is it the ability to consistently square up the ball on the bat part of the bat? Obviously, the answer is both, right? But you're going to need to have uh, some guys will not have both. And can you get by uh, if you're a smaller man comparatively without elite bat speed? Um, we just don't have enough information on Chisholm specifically to say because 
probably didn't play enough in Houston or LA yeah. to make my little leaderboards that I made, but I'm excited to see it everywhere this year. So we can start to get that. Yeah. And almost, you know, you hear from, from more of the, the scouting and sometimes that bat speed could be work to your detriment because it could cover mistakes because you might catch up to a pitch later because you have such quick hands, but you might, you know, be so fast through the zone, <laughs> you know, that also raises your swing and miss rate. Uh, because you're either so eager to hit, you're not necessarily, uh, you know, when you hear it, 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 the barrel goes through the zone, it takes a while or whatever, however they phrase that. Um, you know, it, it can be your, to your the, the really great, the great ones can channel it all and get it all working on time, I guess is my point. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I was looking at the leaderboards of just swing speed in terms of what we measured uh, yesterday. And again, I want to caveat, it was only in two ballparks, you know, so I don't know if maybe Vlad Jr. would have been atop this list and we just didn't see him in those parks, like super incomplete data here. But the whole point was just to see, is this going to pass the smell test? Like, is this even going to matter just from this very, very limited sample we had? And if you look at the uh, the five fastest average swing speeds and the five lowest, they absolutely passed the smell test because the top five was like Trout, Harper, Machado, and somebody I'm forgetting who's oh Julio Rodriguez right and then the, the bottom five was this interesting combination it was guys who aren't very good hitters you know like Patrick Mazika who's a third string catcher a couple more guys like that but also Stephen Kwan and Luis Arise who <laughs> are these elite contact hitters they're still good hitters and it's interesting to me do they they have slow swing speeds because that's they're not physically capable of more. Or because of exactly what you said, they're just trying to keep the bat in the zone because that's what they care about to make contact. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I found their inclusion on the bottom of that list to be really interesting. Yeah, it is. And that's what shows it's not an exact science and you can't measure whether a guy's good or not based on one metric. I remember, you know, when Ichiro was down here in Miami and talking to, you know, a lot of the Japanese reporters, they would mention that Ichiro would intentionally decrease velocity, exit velocity, because he was fine with slapping the ball in front of the outfielder. He wasn't necessarily looking to, yes, there were times if he was looking to drive the ball, if he had a certain pitch, he could he could run it out of here or put the ball in the gap. But he didn't care if his if his exit velo or it was consequently his bat speed was a little bit less because he was just punching a single to left. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think all things being equal, do I want to be on the list with Machado and Rodriguez and Harper and Trout or the list with the Rise and Quan? I'm probably <laughs> picking the first list. There's no doubt. There's, it, no doubt. there's more than one way to succeed. <laughs> there's, there's no doubt. Because you know what? It's funny. I, you know, we'll, we'll talk briefly because I saw last night, I don't know when you when you guys you know, filmed it on the MLB Network, but I was watching your your catching top 10 list. And, and you know, you guys all did a wonderful job on that as always. But it's kind of funny how whether it's um, – Kinney's shredder or or anybody on the panel's top 10 list, I think this the basic eye test compared to the analytics lets you know that JT Real Muto is either first or second. And you know, Adley Rushman is either first or second or third, or Will Smith is first, second, or third. You know, the list is right. You know, the, the, the analytics are saying what the the avid baseball fan already knows. These are the top, you know, at least top five. Uh, the argument probably a little bit more from six to 10, but you know, the, those you already know are really great are also the ones who the metrics are saying are really great. I think that's true for the most part. And it's definitely true to position like catcher. I, I think people get a little hung up on the binary of on the list or not on the list, especially at a position like starting pitcher where I had, I think I had 31 guys I considered for my top 10 list. 
and there's a, I mean, like an incredible amount of starting pitchers. So when you look at just the guys who did not make my top 10, right? Garrett Cole, Spencer Strider, Max Scherzer, Dylan Cease, uh, Zach Wheeler, a whole bunch of other guys like that. There's just there's too many great pitchers, which is a nice problem to have in the sport. But I also only have 10 spots because that's how list making works. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you have your top 30 list. <laughs> you know, and, and, exactly. And that can be a little cumbersome. Dave, you want to jump in? Oh, or is Dave away? I'll give Dave a chance to to, to come in. But um, Mike, I was wanting to ask you about. Obviously, there's rule changes coming on uh, this year, and specifically, let let's kind of talk about uh, with the shifting going away, and and then the reading of defensive metrics. How do you kind of see that? factoring in from an offensive perspective do you think that you know some of these hitters are going to go from 210 to 270 or you know how, how do you kind of see you know how many hits might be added obviously it's going to increase some hits uh but is it going to be as dramatic as some people might think no it's definitely not uh i have personally been against this this idea for a number of years uh there's a lot of reasons why i did not want to see this happen and it happened so fine what i've come to realize is uh the only thing I like more than exciting baseball, and you can probably relate to this, Joe, is great content ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having something interesting <laughs> to write about. And um, man, we're going to get so much good content out of this this year, because I really think there's a a lot of people you hear it on talk radio all the time. You know, Anthony Rizzo is going to go from hitting 220 to hitting 290. It's like, what? Well, he's not probably, you know, if you yeah. go and break down the numbers, which I did, um, I went with, you know, Tom Tango helped me out. We went and looked at all the numbers and uh, what I found was that most guys who would gain hits back, it's going to be like five, six, seven, eight hits, which is not that many over the course of a year. Cor- uh, Corey Seager was the guy who I had like really benefiting, you know, 20 yeah. hits. Uh, but it, it's kind of interesting to think about. Let me give you two reasons here. One is some guys I think might actually be hurt by this. Here in New York, uh, all the Mets fans are like, oh, Jeff McNeil, batting champion. He is going to be great because they can't shift on him anymore. And it's like, hold up. He had like a hundred points of batting average better against the shift than not the shift last year because he was the king of just slapping the ball of the opposite field where nobody was. If you go and watch the Mets broadcasts right on SNY, Gary, Keith and Ron after a while start losing their minds. Why are you still shifting? This guy It doesn't work. And now you can't shift him. I, I actually think that might hurt him. Uh, the second reason is because the shift was not as big of an impact as people thought think it was um first of all the shift was never in place like 95 percent of the time it's like people think it was against lefties last year it was about half the time and i can't tell you how many times i would see a lefty slap a ball like a grounder or a low line drive to right field where there is a, a shifted third baseman or, or a rover or whoever you want to call it and you know you'd get the ball and they'd throw the guy out and the broadcaster would be ah oh, it's another hit lost to the shift and it's like hold up that ball went right through where the regular second baseman would have been anyway. The shift might have made that harder because now he's farther away. Yeah. So you take all that into account. And and really the third thing too, you, you can still position guys up the middle. They don't have to be tethered to the traditional starting spot. You know, I saw Eric Cosmer the other day at CubsCon say, I'm excited to get that hit up the middle back. And it's like, no, you're not. The, the shortstop's <laughs> still going to stand right behind the pitcher. It'll help a little bit. It's going to be a huge aesthetic change. It's going to make things look the way people want it to, which is totally fine. But in terms of, is it going to raise batting average a huge amount? I just really don't think it will. Mike, how much you look into, and that's a really good point. Let's take Hosmer as an example. Still, I would think Hosmer 
is trying to elevate the baseball. So it's you think also now guys who may have had, and he might be the wrong example, more of balls in the air are going to almost intentionally want to hit more ground balls because they think they have more room to sneak a hit by. I, I just don't know how a hitter's approach is going to change that dramatically unless it's just psychological. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Every Everything I did to try to model this, um, I was trying to be open with like, look, I don't know how the guys are going to approach it. Some guys, Joey Gallo is probably a good example. And I'm, I'm speculating. I haven't talked to him. I don't know. But Joey Gallo's problem is making contact. He he has no capability to say, here's where I'm aiming the baseball. <laughs> you know, like yeah. he is going to go up there and say, I'm going to try to hit the baseball as hard as I can. If it happens to be that the guys aren't standing in a way that benefits me, cool. But what am I going to do about it? Now you take someone like Freddie Freeman, you know, Jeff McNeil, those guys probably can control where they hit the baseball a little bit better. So their approaches might change a little bit. Uh, But I also would be really interested to know, let's say you're the Yankees and you have a guy like Anthony Rizzo, who is a name who comes up a lot in regards to this. I, if I'm working for the Yankees, I go up to Anthony Rizzo and I say, listen, I don't really care about your batting average. It doesn't matter to me if you go from 220 to 240. I, I care about your production. I care about the fact that, you know, you're still playing Yankee Stadium and we still have the short porch. So situationally, if it's a big spot, if there's two runners on and a, a single up the middle gets two runs home, like, yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Find that open space. But for the most part, you're a power hitter. I want you to go up there and, and hit for power and not try to hunt singles. And I'd be interested to know how many teams are, are talking like that to their guys. Yeah, it's going to be really the the hitting coach's job has just completely changed. You know, I don't know if people really realize that because they got to implement the philosophy. You know, they got to have okay, what what's our identity as an offense? You know, and all of a sudden now it's wow, they're not overloading one area of the field, so now our philosophy is everyone's up the middle hitters or that might not be in the DNA of, of every hitter. It's especially, you know, you talked on it, uh, touched on it with Rizzo and Yankee stadium in the short porch, but let's talk about those who are playing in the, in the larger stadiums. And I think you, you just did something at on Comerica park in Detroit where they moved in some fences. Can it kind of talk people through what you kind of found out and what they can expect uh, from the tigers or, and the opponents when they, when they go into Detroit? Yeah. Uh, Detroit. Um, you know, former Tiger outfielder Bobby Hickinson called it Detroit National, uh, America National Park, right? And uh, yeah. Dick Castellanos always talked about how much he hated it because it, it's huge. It was, <laughs> you know, I was about to say how deep it was to center, but even that requires a little explanation. <laughs> uh, it was it was 420 to center. And then they said, we're moving it in 10 feet and it's going to be 412. And you're like, wait a minute, that that math doesn't work out. It turns out that the labels on the outfield was wrong. So yeah. they were, it was actually 422 to dead center, even though they called it 420. And it was also three feet wrong down the left field line, which is really funny to think about because there have been times where someone hits a home run and StatCast says, oh, you know, this was this many feet, but the wall says that's not possible. Maybe don't believe the wall all the time. So that was pretty funny. It, it's interesting because it's still going to be a very deep center field there, um, even with it being pulled in. I believe it's second deepest only to Coors Field, and Coors is huge for obvious altitude reasons. So it's not going to change the way it plays that much. They'll get back a couple of you know outs that very deep outs will be home runs or extra base hits probably. But the more interesting thing is they had a very deep wall in right center, 
that was, you know, 13 and a half or something feet. And now it's going to be seven feet all the way around. And I think what's going to happen there is it's not going to really increase offense all that much, but it will increase home run robberies, which are super cool. You can't really rob a ball against the 13 foot wall, but you're kind of against the seven foot wall. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun to watch is like, did you just make it more exciting in a way that people aren't expecting? Yeah. And I think, I think Mike, if I remember, you know, seeing, seeing your, your stat the other day, I think you said like 54 hits more and maybe like 39 ish more home runs. You, you over, you saw, I think over the last three seasons though. Three, not okay. Season. Yeah. Yeah. It was like 2019 or something like that. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Over. So that, yes, yeah, so that's still kind of a small, a small number. And I know that from being down here in Miami at Lone Depot, which, you know, on top of just being the gap so spacious, it's, it's just the ball doesn't carry, you know, it's, uh, there's no altitude and, you know, there, the, the the ocean's like four miles away and, you know, there's it, the ball just doesn't carry. And, and playing the middle of the field is to me, has always really affected this more so than any dimension. Cause obviously course field is dimensions are big, but the ball carries. Yeah. So I, I, I find those fascinating on how all that will translate for these hitters. You there, Mike. Sorry, I didn't know that was, you were into there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I guess I was transitioning to you. Uh, yeah, just how that ball, tra- how that, how you know, like like you were saying, like how that, if it's going to really matter, you know, in the in the bigger parks, or is it more psycho- psychological and just have to deal with the elements of playing eighty one games in a more spacious place? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, if you're the Tigers and you've got a young guy like Spencer Torkelson, didn't really have a good rookie season last year. And he goes up and he's not changing his swing because he thinks he's not going to get anything out of it. And that's, that's probably worth it by itself just to get a guy like that going. Yeah. Dave, you got some? Yeah. If, if you don't mind, Mike, I want to take you back to the shift. I, You made a great point with people perceiving that the shift is going to have this grand opening of, you know, batting average is going to fly up and those little rollover ground balls will be fielded by somebody like the normal second baseman. What value um, do you, do you, believe the value of the second baseman will improve with the shift being negated and what will, how will you guys place a value on that particular adjustment? I think it will a little bit. I think if you look at some of the teams, I think the Dodgers are a good example of this. Um, They're so good at positioning that they've been able to get more offense because they've been able to put some non-traditional guys at these spots. You know, like Max Muncy is not exactly who you think of as like a, a great defensive middle infielder, well, he's been able to play second base in part because they can position him so well. Positioning is not going away, obviously, but the shift is. So that's that's really what I'm going to look at. Uh, so some of these teams who don't have the most traditionally great defenders, will this affect them? I mean, speaking about the Marlins, Lisa Rise is not a great infielder. You know, Joey Wendell is not a traditional shortstop. Is this going to hurt them in ways? I think that's going to be something that's really fascinating and something I'm not going to be able to know the answer to until the season happens. You know, we can make best guesses with data and models, but this is just, it's not a style of play we've ever had to really see before. There's never been a rule against this. Uh, So it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Mike, what's your understanding of the rule? Like, uh, we had Nick Green, a former infielder, brave announcer, on a couple of months ago, and he talked about, you know, he he could live without the shift, but he didn't like to be told you have to have your as a shortstop, you have to have your cleats on the dirt. You like, do you think that we could see where where they could get a little leeway, maybe a few feet in the grass, just to increase range? 
Well, if, I mean, if you do that, then you don't have a rule, right? Like if you can tell the second baseman he's allowed to go play in the outfield, then it's still kind of a shift. Um, th- there is still a way to do it the old school way if you're willing to take the risk. You can move your outfielders wherever you want. So if you yeah. want to say, I'm going to play a left center gap guy and a right center gap guy, and I'm going to take my third outfielder and I'm going to put him in that rover spot, you can do that. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. So it's it's really more about you're taking a larger risk because then if the guy does go opposite field, you know, maybe yeah, it's not so a single now, maybe it's a double <laughs> or a triple <laughs> or a triple. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I, so I think that's cool. It, teams are going to get inventive, right? Like I, I think the biggest misconception here is that everybody has to stand on the spot where you think they should stand. No one's drawing little white circles on the field. You know, you, you have two rules you have to follow really. And there's more than that, but you know, you gotta have two infielders on each side. They gotta have two infielders on each side on the dirt. And you can't play four outfielders. That's pretty much it. Otherwise, do whatever you want. Yeah, it's. I tell you this much: spring training is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to at least see what people have up their sleeve or a little hint of it. Because that's the time to experiment with that. You know, I would think to see how it how does uh, you know, two outfielders who are your ass could be running around, and then one guy is going to be your fifth infielder. You know, if they want to go that route, how that could how that can look. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this, too. Uh, so there's going to be the pitch timer this year. And yeah. I'm a big fan of that. I can't wait to see it. But I hadn't really thought about this till the other day that the shift ban and the pitch timer are kind of necessary together, because if you hadn't been the shift and you put in the pitch timer, how are you going to have guys with enough time to run all the way out to short right field? and then like run all the way back to playing the regular third base spot. You probably couldn't have done it anyway. So it's interesting to me to see how those are going to kind of like coexist together. Hey, how do you think the bigger bases are going to play? I think I think people at second base, what is it? Uh, they're getting about at least three to six inches or something different for the runner. How, how do you, how's um, the math set up? For, uh, I think it went from 14 to 18, but I'm not 100% sure I remember that correctly. Yeah. But that's going to be fascinating, too, because I think now any bobble, let's say you're forget shift, but just the base, you know, uh, it just, you know, guys, you know, position wherever there's a fast runner on first, a medium to hard ground ball to the third baseman who slightly bobbles it. You go to second now because you may have just blown that, you know, because there's that bigger base, those extra few inches. Or now you just you're taking the out at first. I think these type of plays that that's what I'm looking to see how that affects you know any anything if that base is going to that distance. Obviously the the players will adjust. It won't take very long, but that's going to matter because these guys are pretty fast. I think you're 100 percent right, and I also think everyone will have forgotten the bases are bigger by May 15th. Honestly, yeah. because they're not like so big that you're going to notice it if you're sitting in the in the stands. And if you think about all the other changes that are happening, you know, the shift, obviously, pitch timer, uh, the the limit on pickoffs, now, even like the balanced schedule, right? There's so many things that are different this year that to say that people are going to notice the bigger bases, I just I just don't think anyone's going to remember it. You know, if you go back a couple of years where they said, OK, for intentional walks, you just wave the guy to first, you know, through the four pitches. Yeah. People were mad about that for like a week and then nobody ever thought about it again. And that's kind of where I think the basis thing's going to go. Well, how about with, you know, pop time for catchers or things like that, where you got, you know, you're making it easier to steal a bat for a faster guy. Anything that shortens it, your secondary leads is closer and your base is a few inches shorter. So anything bang, bang, obviously there's still going to be bang, bang plays, 
but I, it's going to be interesting to see if a, if a number, if a guy normally steals 40 gets 44, is that, does he get 47? Does he get 50? That, that type of result. Yeah. But, it, but that's, if that happens, and I think you're right that it will, it's going to be difficult to say it's because of the bases and not necessarily because of the limit on pickoffs, right? Because yeah. early, not even pickoffs, disengagements, because if you step off the mound, that counts. Um, and then if a guy has a pretty good idea that you're not allowed to throw over again, that's more likely a bigger lead. I think that's really what's going to fuel stolen bases. Yeah. Well, you're, I guess we're going to see, uh, uh, you know, a lot more of uh, either quick pitches or, you know, obviously pitchers, uh, guys on base, they're going to, they're going to be just going right, right home. <laughs> you know, there's, there's not going to be a lot of messing around. Uh, Dave, jump in. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you know, obviously different way to watch the game today than when I was a kid, um, growing up with my dad and watching baseball. What's your recommendation to the parent now? We've got a big audience of grassroots, a lot of parents, uh, you know, in these, these grassroots programs that listen, they're trying to sit and watch a game with their kid that is not the same bit of information when they were. Um, what are some go-to numbers, uh, analytics that maybe dads, moms can pick up to have that conversation like you're using analytics to do with their kids while they're watching a game? What's your go-to yeah, ones? For sure. I have, I have a seven-year-old son myself, and he is an enormous baseball fan. Somehow a Rockies fan. I'm not entirely sure how I made that happen, but he loves baseball. <laughs> uh, and he, I haven't quite gotten him into the advanced stats yet, but I'm sure I will. So I, I think the answer to that question uh, is probably two things. The first is that uh, as we've got, as we're almost a decade now into StatCast, and more than that into any kind of advanced stats. A lot of the broadcasts are just doing a really better job at presenting it. You know, like I said, even just yesterday, I presented to a bunch of game producers on what is this stuff, how to use it, because nobody wants a TV broadcast to be a physics class. Like, that's no fun. So how can we turn these things into visuals? How can we explain what teams are doing and why? Uh, I think it, a lot of it comes down to the broadcast doing a good job and the talent in the booth being open to it, all of which I think is better than it used to be. The second thing I would say is a lot of what StatCast does, it doesn't have to be you know, these complicated models of expected stats or anything like that. A lot of it's just putting numbers to the eye test. Who is the fastest runner, right? We've never been able to tell you that until 2016. Who, Which position players have the strongest throwing arms? Well, that leaderboard launched for the first time ever at the end of last season, right? Which catchers have the best pop times? A lot of this is just scouting stuff, you know, which, which pitcher's curveball drops the most. Those don't have to be complicated things. They can match the eye test and, you know, you can use them pretty easily without having to go like wildly deep into understanding all of these numbers. Now, when, when you're talking to broadcasters and then on the other side, you're talking to scouts, what's, what is your recommendation, let's say to the broadcaster on how to make it more digestible to the audience and more, you know, less like a physics class. What were some of your recommendations? Uh, Making a visual uh, for sure is the very first thing Um, you've probably all seen. They do the uh, the hitter's spray chart overlay, like the five pie slices that are color-coded, which I think is pretty cool. That comes from our data. You don't really need to know much to understand it. You see the numbers, you see the color coding. You're like, oh, this guy's never going to hit the ball to that side. Like, I think that is something that's easily consumable. Um, leaderboards, any kind of context are great. You may not care what a guy's spin rate is, but if you can say, hey, this guy's curveball spins more than anybody else's in baseball, that's really interesting. And I think stuff like that goes a long way when you have former players in the booth, uh, guys who were very, very good on the field, know more about baseball than I will ever know, but didn't necessarily play during a time when all this stuff is out there. Some of those guys have had difficulty adjusting. 
And if you can make it baseball for them and you can say like, hey, this guy used to call it a bowling ball sinker. Well, now I can just tell you that he has the sinker that sinks more than anything else in baseball. He can talk about that, right? He doesn't need to understand the measurements, but he can say, oh, that's exactly what my eye test is telling me. And here's the leaderboard to back it up. And I think that's the best way to marry those two things. What about to the scouts? How, how, how have you helped them marry this information, especially ones that maybe grew up in a time where you know, you have Joe's son, who is an up and coming scout, who's kind of grown up with this, but you have others that have been in the business. How do you help them uh, kind of close the gap? It's a good question. For the most part, I don't. I, I don't really talk to scouts because scouts work for teams and the teams pretty much all have their own version of me, someone who's you know smarter and more more in the weeds on it. And try, they try to keep all of that you know in-house so that nobody else can get an advantage. What I try to do is present all this publicly as much as possible. We almost consider ourselves the 31st team at times. So we're talking to the fans or we're talking to the broadcasters. Uh, we're talking to the writers. Uh, but as far as like the people who work, you know, the scouts for the teams, they generally try to keep all those guys you know, uh, off the media for the most part. Well, I'll tell you what, I coached collegially for 20 years. And if I was with an organization, I'd have you on private speed dial. <laughs> well, thanks for that. I technically work for all 30 teams. So I think that's part of the issue too. Yeah, as you're, you're seeing, Dave, it's, uh, Mike is the best. It's just always great to talk to him and get such great insight. And and like I like I said, he, he kind of breaks it down. That's so digestible for, for anybody's you know, expertise in this highly complex, sometimes sport of baseball. Mike, what are some of the, the go-to data that you look at? You you noted on some stuff, I and you spoke earlier about um, guys with lower batting averages, but I, I'm with you. I, I think we both are on the same page. I see slugging as really important. And, you know, I'm looking for doubles and more, you know, from as often as I could get. I'd rather have, if you have a lower batting average, but a higher slugging percentage, and obviously that probably may, means your OPS is pretty good. Um, I, that's what I really value. What, what in that department do you value in, in really kind of zeroing in on a good hitter, let's say? Uh, first stat I would go to would be weighted runs created plus or WRC plus. You could use OPS plus too. It's very similar concepts. Uh, WRC plus is better from a math perspective because OPS is flawed in the sense that you can't really just smash on base percentage and slugging percentage together <laughs> as though they're on the same scale. And then shockingly, it works reasonably well. So that's why I have no problem when people say OPS plus because uh, it, it works. But, you know, I like WRC plus because it puts the appropriate weight on everything. You know, home runs are worth more than triples or worth more than doubles, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it accounts for park effects, which is super important. Obviously, it's harder to be a hitter in Miami than Colorado, and it puts everything onto a scale where 100 is even. And that's that's useful because it's even, for, uh, I'm sorry, not even, average for that year. So you can go back to the beginning of history. I can go back and see, and I'm making these numbers up because I don't have them in front of me, but you know, if Ted Williams had a, a 180 WRC plus one year, Right away, I know he was 80% better than the league average for that year. And I think that kind of context makes it really useful. So that's always the first place I go. Oh, okay. It should be um, everyone take notes out there. Let's go into pitching side because this is what I find that's really I'm paying more attention to as as you kind of see, you know, the really great pitchers. And I've kind of been more intrigued by extension. And, you know, the release point, that extension, those pitchers like the Logan Gilberts who really get down the mound. Um, you know, Steve Ciszek was our guest uh, last week. Steve just retired, as you know. He was one of those guys that could, I think he said he 
like wowed some of his teammates because he was like a foot longer like than they were, you know, going down down the down the the mound. Uh, kind of talk about how important that is in, in that aspect of the game. It is. It's, it's very funny. People will say, "How far is the distance between home plate and the mound?" And they'll say, "Well, it's sixty feet six inches." And I will say, "No, it is as long or as short as you want it to be, based on how you deliver." Um, I mean, you were there, I think, weren't you there for the Connor Caps experience? Yes. When he, uh, yeah, Carter oh my Capps, goodness, yeah. yeah, yeah, he, yeah, when he, he like, was, like touching the batter, <laughs> it leapt off the mound, and they had to tell him to stop basically because he was jumping like I don't know eight feet in front of the mound to throw these fireballs. Um, and so that's, that's a good way to say I can make my fastball play up or play down based on how far I'm delivering it to the plate, right? Cause there's a big difference. You deliver it 57 feet from home plate or 53 feet from home plate. Well, four feet's not nothing. And when you're talking about fractions of a second in terms of a fastball getting to the plate, that can really make it seem faster, uh, or slower. I, I think there's probably a little bit if you combine it with um, release point, like height or, or horizontal release point, that all in a soup together gets to some kind of unquantifiable deception. Like there's never been a good metric for that, but we know it exists, right? We know some guys hide the ball well, some guys don't. And some of that, I guess, is probably, you know, is the ball behind their ear? Does it look like it's coming out of their shirt or whatever? But all that stuff goes into it, right? Like every, you could have two fastballs that are 95, the same spin rate, but they're not going to play the same. Right. Maybe it's command. Maybe it's how it plays off the other pitches, whatever. But it's also it's also where it's released. It's also the uh, the angle that it's uh, getting into the plate. There's so much that goes into it beyond just the raw. Here is my fastball velocity. Who in that regard do you look at? I gave you Gilbert as an example. Is, is there anyone that you just whenever he's pitching, you're like saying, hey, I'm watching that guy tonight to just see where like he's like the Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton of exit velo for for pitchers. Well, I mean, if I want somebody who looks very weird, it's um can never remember which one it is. One of the Rogers is who I guess they both play for San Francisco now, but the one yeah. who had previously been there, the submariner who throws like the rising slider, someone I always <laughs> look at. Um, I also like I love guys who can get more out of their pitch than you would think just by looking at the fastball velocity. So Joe Ryan, Minnesota is a guy who stands out in that way. He doesn't throw that hard. But the way that he throws it, he's got like good rising action on it. Um, and he throws it a little more. I think he was a water polo player. So he's got this really interesting like three quarters ish fastball release. And then it rises from that. I mean, sinks more slowly, I guess, is the technical term. And guys just can't see it. They can't square it up. And so it plays up so much above you'd expect an otherwise uninteresting 92 mile an hour forcing fastball to play. Those are the kind of things that fascinate me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's always like a good point because you might get those guys who throw like ninety one and they're getting swing and misses on their fastball up in the zone. Like how's the hitter, you know, not hitting that? But clearly, they don't think it's ninety one. They see something completely different. Uh, those kind of guys. Yeah, no, that's that's. Then that's what teams are measuring in the minors too. I mean, you can't just you can't just scout the radar gun, right? Like that is helpful. You'd like to throw hard, uh, but you need to see how it comes out. You need to see how it moves, how the hitter reacts to it or doesn't. That can all tell you a lot. Yeah, Mike, talk about sample sizes. You, you see a lot of people they'll they'll think they got a player boxed in. They know what he is based on a hot April and May, and then when they play a full year, they're a totally different player. 
Well, that's true. Uh, it depends very much on what number you're looking at, right? So if we're talking about, let's say, fastball velocity, I need a sample size of like two, you know? I, yeah. don't, I don't need to see that many fastballs to know that Hunter Green throws real hard, right? Like you can tell that pretty much straight away. Uh, other stuff, it takes a lot longer. Uh, you know, if you're looking at batting average, that takes like a thousand plate appearances to have any reliability in it because it's it's not just about skill it's also a bit of, about luck you know where's the ball hitting the field did you get lucky with that exit velocity is a lot closer because that tends to stabilize pretty fast i mean billy hamilton's not gonna hit the ball that hard Aaron judge is gonna hit the ball that hard you're gonna know that really fast the ones i like to look at are like strikeout rate swing rate that kind of plate decision stuff which you can get to in 50 60 70 100 plate appearances which isn't that many uh comparatively but it's it's that kind of stuff that takes longer and like just the straight up measuring a skill or a speed you know like arm strength running skill you can get to that pretty fast yeah like before we get out of here i want to talk a little bit about kind of kind of the basics of of stack cast especially back in 15 when it launched because these two terms came out and really become part of the the baseball conversation Launch angle and exit velocity. Kind of talk about the evolution of those and and either, you know, you hear a lot of the acceptance of it, but a lot of also people, oh, I don't want to hear about it. You know, they it's like the older school people, they get offended by it and and some of the other people they overuse it. How do you how, are you kind of amazed how the those terms have been the history of the evolution of those two terms? A little bit. I mean, exit velocity is so simple. It's just how hard did you hit the ball? I don't hear anybody complaining that we know how hard a pitcher threw the ball. You know, it's like, I get it. It, Can it be overused? Do you care about the exit velocity on just a a single to left field or a bloop? It can probably be overused in the sense that nobody really needs to see it on every single batted ball. And the thing that annoys me, I think a little bit is, um, let's say O'Neill Cruz, right? He came up last year and he smoked a ball and it was 122 point something. And it was the hardest tracked ball that Sackhurst has ever had. And since it's my personal belief that the players now are bigger, stronger, faster than they've ever been, I believe that's the hardest hit ball that's ever been hit in Major League Baseball. Can't prove it, obviously, but I have a pretty good idea that it is. And people were like, well, yeah, but they lost the game. Well, okay, that stinks. (laughs) It'd be nice if the Pirates were a better team, but. This guy might, as a rookie, maybe just hit the hardest hit ball we've ever seen. That's super cool. Like, if you don't think that's cool, then I'm not sure how you get excited about baseball, you know? And then the other thing is some people are saying, well, Tony Gwynn never used his exit velocity. Well, I guarantee you if he had access to it, he would have. I mean, (laughs) Ted Williams wrote a book about baseball science. Don't tell me he wouldn't be interested in knowing as much data about himself as he could have. It was available at the time. It's sort of like how people say, well... My grandparents talked to people and didn't look at their phones all the time. Well, if your grandparents had iPhones, they would have been looking at the iPhones. <laughs> it evolves, doesn't it, Mike? That's the bottom yeah, line. <laughs> this <board exactly>. <laughs> and and you know, you mentioned the interesting point because I go back to fifteen when when Statcast came out and uh, the late great uh, Jose Fernandez was doing remarkable things that Statcast was tracking, and back then Stanton was kind of the king of all the exit velocity. So we were, you know, I was lucky enough to be kind of on these two freakishly talented physical players. And it made me appreciate it, but it also made me recognize that when I was writing at Stanton's Homer was 117 mile an hour exit below, 
that that was a special bat speed. It wasn't or a special uh, exit speed. And not that everybody that hits a home run at 101 with a 28 launch is like, but that's, I think what we, I think what has happened is we'll have people, a guy go 0 for 4 with four ground outs. And I'll hear, see people on Twitter going, the guy had a great day. He had four ground balls at 97 miles an hour. That guy hit every, he's just unlucky. Well, I mean, there are times that that's true. Like, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you go for four with four smoke line drives, it probably didn't help you win that game. But it would give me some confidence that I'm going to keep that guy in the lineup. Right. Because it's like, well, he's seeing the ball well. It hit the ball hard. Nothing is more important than getting the runs on the board. Like even I, would I rather, you know, two outs in the ninth inning, big spot, hit a crushed line drive at a billion miles an hour of exit velocity for an out or a dinky little 40 mile an hour exit velocity? game-winning hit of course i want the hit i yeah. want the win let's not be naive about this but if we're trying to get to, to hitter skill uh, and into almost like a scouting language you know you could look at some of these guys and say yeah the production's not there but you are hitting it hard and i know i can tell you for a fact the managers and coaches have gone to players who are hitting like 150 and said listen i know you're feeling really bad about yourself but we don't think that you're playing that badly i know it's not working for you this isn't that we don't think you have the skill. You're not earning the 150. Everything we see says you're earning a 240, you know, which isn't great, but it's better. Uh, keep doing what you're doing and you're going to be fine. And I like that as like a confidence builder in some kind of ways. I think that's a cool way to use it. Yeah. Um, that's probably a good note to, to kind of wrap this thing up on. Dave, do you got one more for, for Mike? I did. And this is, again, I always ask one selfish question per episode, Mike, and I, I, I take Joe's show off to the, the right sometimes. But with you had mentioned your when you were doing the pitching rankings and you had 30, 31 pitchers that you were trying to decide, not an easy task. What were some of the things that you used to differentiate between, you know, guys that maybe were that didn't hit your top 10 and maybe some that some things you used to help guys, you know, be one through five? And it could be the same thing. But what were some of your differentiators? Um, a dartboard mostly for those. pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> there's, I mean, there's so many good ones. Uh, so. At a certain point, I had to come up with the reasons to to just try to find to exclude a guy. All right. So Dylan Cease was phenomenal. He he walks a lot. He walks a lot more than guys I had above him. Doesn't mean he's not a great pitcher. He is. But that was the thing I could point to and say, uh, you know, he walks so many guys. He's my number 12, not my number 10. Uh, Max Scherzer, wonderfully great. He's getting older and he has missed a couple of missed time with injuries. I think last year he only threw 140 innings. I, that was a reason enough for me not to have him quite on. Spencer Strider doesn't have the track record. I haven't seen him do it for a full season. He he might make me look real foolish this year for not putting him on. You know, so it's kind of the stuff like that. And then when I figured out who my ten was going to be, you know, the, the ranking, it's it's hard to say there's a huge difference between number four and number six. You know what I mean? Because the guys are that great, but the guys at the top are sort of my best mixture of incredibly talented. And fewest warts. Like another example, Garrett Cole didn't make my top 10. Why? He's given up a lot of homers the last couple of years. I still think he's extremely good. He's like the 15th best starting pitcher in baseball. But at this point, when there's so much talent at the top, uh, you got to find reasons to get somebody off. Otherwise, you'd be there all day. Yeah. Who was your one, two, three? I had, you know, this is going to be unpopular, I think. I had DeGrom number one um, because unlike the year previous, this time he ended the year healthy as opposed to ending the year injured. And there's no question about the talent. So I'm, I'm hopeful the first year of the new contract, he'll be healthy. Uh, number two, I had Aaron Nola right, right above Sandy and number three. Uh, the reason for that was 
Nola's had like six great seasons, better strikeout rate than Sandy, better walk rate. And even though, you know, it, it, the innings difference wasn't really that much, he threw like 92% of the innings and actually more if you include the postseason, which it shouldn't. So that was my number one, two, three, DeGrom, Nola, Sandy. What are you talking about? No, it's like, no, that's, yeah. I think the, the beauty of, I hope our audience takes from this is, whether you agree or disagree with anything that Mike has said over this last 45 or so minutes is you have to respect his process. And there is, there's a reason and he can explain it very clearly on the reasons. And that's one of the reasons we're, I was really excited to get him on this show today. And Mike, tell everybody how they can reach you. Obviously you can see Mike on MLB network and on his work on MLB.com and tell them your Twitter handle and and whatever else uh, you're doing. So people could connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. MLB.com for sure. Uh, Baseball Savant is where we roll out all the cool and interesting new metrics. And on Twitter at Mike underscore Petriello, P-E-T-R-I-E-L-L-O. Yep. Dave, some announcements. Any last things for Mike? And then we'll start getting out of here. Mike, I appreciate it. You were phenomenal today. I love how you self-audit too. I mean, you're you're putting your information out there and reminding people that it it could depend on this. It's it's a phenomenal way to look at analytics and we appreciate that approach with um, our audience, 11,000 faithful subscribers. We appreciate your support. Continue to support Joe's man on second here. He does a great job. He brings on phenomenal guests and we get treated every day uh, for what what he does for us. Go on patreon.com and please support him with the man on second podcast. Also don't forget to download, listen, like subscribe, Write to us. I'm always good about getting back and, and helping it contribute to the success of the show. 46 countries, we love you. Thanks for following us. I don't know how we're translating in some of these countries since we're all in English, but God bless them for doing it. And then grassroots the front offices, keep feeding us information. We'll keep feeding it back to you. Um, and Joe, I'll leave it up to you to sign us off here. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And and thanks again to, to Mike Petriello. Uh, I'm getting excited. I know Mike is excited about the season starting. February is when you really crank it up. I don't know about you, Mike, but I always kind of like, you know, January, okay, I'll take it a little easier. I don't want to jump ahead because you know how long the season is. But, man, once February comes and you're way, oh, two weeks or less, then you kind of get excited for it, and I'm sure you're there too. Thanks again, Mike, for being on, buddy. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Dave. Okay. And uh, to our listeners, again, Man on Second podcast here, part of the Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Joe Frasaro, and we are out of here. 